Andy Vitas. I work for Scale Venture Partners, which is an early stage venture fund in Silicon Valley. I'm Sudhir Reddy. I'm head of engineering at Esper, as well as the host of this show. There's a device for that. Hi, everyone. Today, I have the honor and the pleasure of talking to Andy Vitas, who is a partner at Scale Venture Partners. He focuses on investing in cloud computing, web infrastructure, and mobile technology. But more important, or interesting to me at least, is that he explores new technologies. He's a coder himself, and he's an engineer at heart. I'm excited to talk to Andy. We'll be talking about next-gen devices, how the device world is impacting our lives and our work. We'll talk about software and how software gets onto these devices, and then we'll talk about DevOps and how the mindset of DevOps really helps with a lot of the work that needs to get done on devices. Now, Andy, I had the pleasure of uh, looking at your blogs. I read through your blog. And one thing that uh, importantly caught my eye was you talk about an intelligent connected world in, in one of these. And you talk about connected devices, AI and ML, all of which are great technologies to enhance our lives. You also talk about how technology will become more and more personal and will also fade into the background at the same time. Let's explore that a little bit. How have apps and devices changed in the past few months and years from your perspective, having seen so many things in the industry? And how are they making our lives better? So I'm an electrical engineer by training. And in my, my very first ever job, I had to gather data from a gas sensor. Um, and back then it was before the internet and before reliable wireless connectivity. And so everything had to be, you know, wired directly into a little motherboard that I built. It, things, I think things have just got a lot easier today, you know, with ubiquitous Wi-Fi and, and now 5G coming along, it's much easier to backhaul data up to servers. Um, and you can count on, on the reliability of, of the networks. I also think there have been tremendous, there's been tremendous progress in just power. Uh, that you know, batteries last a lot longer and chips need far less power than they used to 10, 20 years ago. Um, and so I think all of those have combined to be able to run real compute and, and real data networking on, on remote edge devices. And how do you think that with the evolution of AI and ML and things, how is all that coming together in terms of these devices are everywhere and how can machine learning and artificial intelligence help us enhance that? experience? I think in the early days, 8-bit microcontrollers were sort of the best you could hope for on, a, on an edge device, and there really wasn't that much compute you could do. It's actually quite amazing when you think on, you know, the, the power that you have even on a, on a mobile phone is kind of the, is far more than what you used to have on a desktop computer 10 years ago. And so it's, it's for the first time it's possible to have real intelligence on an edge device. Um, and I think the, again, the power consideration is very big. The, the brain consumes a huge, I forget what percentage of the body's energy is consumed by the brain, but intelligence just requires energy. And I think the, you know, all the advances that we've made in battery technology and you know, once we got down to 0.08 nanometer chips, they could, they could function on hardly any power at all. So even being able to unlock solar power on the edge has, has just allowed for a lot more kind of creative design choices when you're build, building an edge device. It's always been the dream to push intelligence out to the edge. Um, you, you know, you'll never solve the latency problem all the way back to a server. So 
it's a little bit like talking to someone who has to think for five seconds before they answer any question uh, when you don't have intelligence at the edge. And so I think that being able to kind of marry the power of backend servers and all the data available to them with sort of intelligence at the edge and the kind of immediacy of response is, is a huge change in the world. And yeah, that has revolutionized how we even interact with these technologies. Today, I have a machine in my house that I can talk to that tells me, hey, are you heading to work in the next 15 minutes? And if so, here's all the things you need to know. And that's kind of the cool stuff that you can you can get out of this. I would be surprised if Siri doesn't interrupt our conversation at some point. She has a habit of interrupting. <laughs> she, yeah, she does. And I have Google and she does too, uh, sometimes. <laughs> so, you know, we talk about devices and computing at the edge and all of that, but to power all of this, there's a plethora of software being written that's not just doing the things you need to do uh, and fading into the background, as you say it, but also it's learning every minute and things. So talk about some of the importance of software and how you see that evolve, both in the past and how you see that evolve in the future as well. Almost 25 or 30 years ago, I, I was actually doing research in machine learning in a lab in Cape Town. And we, back then, the joke was you could come in and you could train your model and then leave for the rest of the day while, this, while the processes all worked away. And the power that you had available to you was, was just a fraction of what's available today. So I think the, the ability to train models using, you know, leveraging all of AWS and then be able to run them on the edge, because once they train, they actually don't need quite as much power as to the training part needs. Um, I think that's unlocked a lot of possibilities. You know, the, the biggest model out there is GPT-3 and how it was trained on you know, hundreds of billions of words and 175 billion parameters. And I think when you have that power available to you now on any device, um, that's quite a big sea change. And those trends, you know, one of the things that I always remind myself of is the computing revolution was ushered in by Moore's law, which was kind of compute power doubled every 18 months or two years, depending on how you look at it. The processing power that's used to train these machine learning models is doubling every four months. Mm -hmm. um, so, so this revolution is coming at us a lot faster than the computing revolution came. And even, you know, the, there was a similar exponential growth in the, in, in the rise of the internet. So at scale, we think this is going to be the next 20 years is going to be dominated by software gradually converting over all software written with machine learning first and foremost at the heart of it. Um, and I think the kind of parallel trend, the reason why we always talk about an intelligent connected world is a large part of the intelligence comes from the edge devices, gathering data about the real world. You know, up until maybe four or five years ago, all of software was written with, most of the data it used came from, from the human entered data, you know, through a typical UI that landed in a database, and then the app, all the app did was give that data back to you in a report or a chart. But I think the, when we talk about an intelligent connected world, once you allow software and machines to gather data themselves about the world from connected devices, there's just a lot more information to harness. Um, and then they can learn continuously without humans having to train them. So I think that those two trends are going to combine very powerfully. Um, we, we are now investing two thirds of our current portfolios invested in companies that have machine learning at the core of what they do. What I always say is the, the, the way we use software is going to change and the way we build software is going to change. And I think no one, no one builds application these days without an expectation of some data being gathered somewhere in the world to kind of inform the, form the business logic. So 
it's definitely an exciting world and you know we're seeing it across verticals from healthcare to logistics to robots in warehouses to you know in inside call centers uh, even inside the home there's a there's a lot a lot of change happening and it's fascinating how not just the technology industry evolving itself but also where the some of the funding is going and where some of the focus on what's coming next is going uh, in terms of your investments as well. In all of this, I want to pick on a thread of something you said earlier where machines are, all the learning algorithms and things are done on servers and then you're pushing some of the algorithms to the edge and then there's very little power use, etc. But then that also brings to question in today's world of where there's a lot of software being built, why would innovating on software and, and delivering that software to devices in a more cadenced in a quicker manner, why, why would that be so important? Because it's kind of an interesting dichotomy. You do need that, but you also want your devices to be independent as well. Yeah, yeah. I think the whole history of software development has been towards releasing software quicker and quicker, the whole agile movement. And so far, you know, the, the people who, do, who write software for embedded devices have sort of been left out of the DevOps revolution. They were left out in the cold partly because it was extremely difficult to update software on, a, on devices. You know, the, it was difficult to update software on servers once upon a time, but it's, it became a lot easier with the, with the rise of AWS because you could just tear down the server and rebuild the exact one with the new software on it. It took a few minutes. And so that sort of brought in the whole DevOps revolution and, and we invested in that along the way, but you never really saw that in devices. I don't think people didn't want to be able to update the software on the device easily. They just, once they had deployed it, they were terrified to make a change once they knew it was working. Um, in the same way that developers have always been scared of making a change and breaking something until you could knew you could fix it again five seconds later or roll back the previous version. And when you've got devices, you know, when you've got a million devices all coming online and offline at different times, you know, a deployment can take days or weeks even. And so if you, if you release the wrong software, then rolling back can take days and weeks and meanwhile you've got a bunch of crippled devices. I mean, one of the promises of Esper is unlocking that sort of DevOps revolution for embedded software engineers. I always look at the, um, you know, the software in, that people don't even realize is in devices all around the house that, that, people, that hardly ever gets updated. So there are new features shipping with the new devices that never get sent, you know, sent to the old devices. And, I think everyone's had that experience with cars where you, you, they never, your software never gets better in your car. It's just the same software you got 10 years ago. And I think even that's going to gradually change where there will be an expectation of new feature releases. Um, maybe I'm just too much of an engineer, but I think most people love, love the newest version of anything. And so I think uh, you, know, you, you want to get new features. And I think People are paying, moving more and more towards subscription models, even for consumers. And I think one of the reasons, one of the ways we sold subscription models in business was you get nonstop updates and things improve. And I think for consumers, you know, we've you you come to expect it um, on on everything. And as we start paying subscription for devices, um, you, there'll be an expectation of more frequent software updates. Yeah, and for our listeners out there, one of the things I, I want to amplify that you just said is. Most devices have not been in through the DevOps revolution until very recently, till, um, till literally Esper came into the market for, for devices. And you're absolutely right in that what we're seeing is that devices 
are not getting updated, not because they don't want to deliver capabilities, but they're scared of delivering these capabilities to the to the devices. And we're about to change all of that. With that, uh, you know, before we move on to picking up a little bit more on DevOps, I wanted to quickly touch on a couple of other subjects that I'm fascinated to learn about, but also want our listeners to hear, is what have uh, some of your recent investments been in terms of where you're seeing the uh, the trends going and what you're seeing are things that are going to become part of our daily lives in the near future here. Yeah. And, you know, historically, we've always defined ourselves as kind of software investors only. We used to actually have a semiconductor and a hardware group, but that was a long, long time ago. And we, we decided to focus on software. And then we noticed one day that more and more, even though the heart of the company was software, it was often being shipped with a device or on a device. Um, and eventually, you know, that gradually changed over time where we, 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 we relaxed that kind of software only constraint. And, and we do often invest in companies now where there's a fairly substantial hardware component. I'd say one of the most notable examples of that is Locus Robotics, which makes uh, warehouse robots. Uh, everyone, when you buy, when everyone's buying online and somehow the, everything has to get to you and it's usually shipped from a warehouse somewhere, for, it's an outsourced warehouse in many cases. And what Locus Robotics does is they, you know, all the devices are stacked up on shelves in a warehouse that's the size of an aircraft hangar and they fetch the, fetch the item off the shelf and drop it off at the, at the person packing the box for you. You know, it's almost like getting your, work, the, your brain updated, but they periodically update all the robots and they can't have any downtime in a warehouse, so it has to be a flawless update. The robots have a lot of machine learning built into them, and every time they, there's a new kind of update, they get more intelligent. So the, there's a, a strong motivation to update them most frequently as possible. Um, so that, that's one example. We've also, we, we were an early investor in a company called Drone Deploy, which makes the software for drones. And they've got so sophisticated now that they can even update the software while the drone is in the air and flying around. The drones are used by, by people who, who definitely don't want to pay any attention to, to software updates. I mean, they're used a lot by farmers, they're used in the construction industry. And I, when a farmer goes out to survey his orchard, the last thing he wants to do is get a, please plug this drone in and update the software. So it's, it's a challenging software update problem uh, that drone deploy had to solve. They release software now whenever they need to. So that, that's, that's gone really well. Um, and then an, another one that I that I'd mentioned is we we actually invested in a company called called Robin, which which deploys a device into doctors' offices, which listens to the whole visit. It's uh, their the early market was in with for orthopedic surgeons, and it listens to the visit. And then when you you know at the end, it it has a verbal transcript that they can rather than handing it off to coders in the back office to kind of mark all the medical codes so that you can get reimbursed, the doctor can get reimbursed and bill, do the billing. It just does that all automatically. So there's a lot of intelligence built into the camera and microphone to see what the doctor's looking at, which knee he's prodding um, or hitting with that little hammer. And so they, they do all of that automatically now. Um, and then there's a lot of rich intelligence in the endpoint there. And then they also leverage the backend service to kind of do a lot of the coding part of it. That's amazing. And I come from a long history of DevOps uh, on the server side, as you mentioned uh, in my previous life, uh, it was DevOps for the um, infrastructure and things. And we went from a world that had, uh, you know, a half an hour downtime whenever you needed to update software was perfectly acceptable, two minutes. 
And now we hear the story of uh, as the drone is flying, you're updating software. And that's amazing how uh, technology is pushing. And specifically, the devices are pushing some of this technology to, to, to invent new ways of doing things. What's on the horizon, Andy? What are you seeing coming up that our listeners should be aware of and think about, hey, here are some cool ideas of what's going on out there? We rely mostly on entrepreneurs to tell us what's on the horizon, but we, in sort of the, our last three funds, we've gone from almost no investing in machine learning to 20% to 40%, and this fund is, looks as though it's going to be 60% in machine learning. So we're all in on that trend, um, and we think it's going, we're going to continue to go up. I think one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time on is just training. It's expensive to train these machine learning models. Um, the data set is, you know, it's hard to gather the training data from the real world. And so I've actually been spending some time looking at synthetic data. We recently made an investment in a, a company that can make synthetic humans. So if you need to train a doorbell to recognize when your UPS pack, your, you, the UPS delivery arrives and is going to drop off your package, it, you need to train it on humans. But it's expensive to get every different type of human to, to build up a data set of humans. And so they've made synthetic humans that you can use to quickly train the, at least the, the recognition part. Um, and so I think we, you know, we're always looking for companies that, particularly on the machine learning side, that build up proprietary data sets of the real world. Um, because I think that's where a lot of the value is going to lie. And that, that theme of software, understanding the context in which it exists and then the built environment around it is something that we're investing in a lot. Perfect. And if you're out there and you're thinking about doing things in any one of the areas that Andy just talked about, know that you're on the right track there. And if not, and Andy sparked a bunch of ideas for you, uh, we've accomplished our mission here. I'm going to switch gears a little bit now and pick up on something you said earlier about how, because we need to deliver software at scale to all these devices, how the mindset of teams that are developing these applications or whatever software needs to run on these devices Talk a little bit more about that mindset and how specifically DevOps plays a key role in, in being able to do that rapid deployment of software. They always say there's that saying that quantity has a quality all its own, right? And so once the number of devices you have to update gets into the hundreds of thousands and the millions, you know, there are very few companies that ever had to update that many servers. Um, but at the device level, it's sort of, there's always this kind of hundred to a thousand X multiplier. It's roughly a thousand. I, I always think of roughly a, for every server, there are a thousand to 10,000 devices. So when you need to update a device, you know, little errors can propagate. When you're updating servers, you can have a, the occasional fail and, and you just redo it. But when you're updating devices, you don't want to strand 10,000 devices or brick 10,000 devices. You'll have a lot of unhappy customers. So I think the reliability has to go up tremendously when you're doing the device. I recently had my treadmill just completely bricked because Nordic Track just pushed a bad update. And it, their, their response was, you have to buy a whole new treadmill. And I kept saying to them, but you are the guys who broke it. <laughs> so it was working fine until you told me to update the software. So, so I think no one's going to tolerate a software update that breaks the device. And so I think that reliability and the quality bar for software updates is going to have to be raised tremendously. And this, and, the, and then just a, gen, a more of a general ethos of fault tolerance. You know, you've got to be able to roll back quickly. You have to be able to have kind of canary deployments that detect errors as you as you roll out, and and all of that sort of thing. 
And so I think a lot of the extreme best practices in server deployments and server releases are going to be just be kind of the table stakes for, for updating devices. Um, that's why I think it's foolish to try build your own um, because the scale, you know, we haven't really done, we at a whole new level of scale. And I, and I think you should, it's, it's not an easy problem at all to solve. There's also, you know, the other sort of distinguishing fact of, I, I worked on, on embedded print servers once upon a time, and there's often you're updating software, but you're also updating firmware. So you're kind of reflashing chips on the board and things like that. And that, that's a whole new, whole challenge, you know, all of its own. It's a little bit like updating the software on a server and deciding to just quickly, quietly flash the BIOS while you're about it. You know, that's not something that anybody ever does, but that's sort of a fairly common thing that you have to do when you're updating, updating software. Maybe there's an FPGA on the board or something like that. So it's it's a it's a trickier a trickier problem. Yeah, and uh, shameless plug here for Esper. That is all of that is exactly what Esper enables all of our devices customers to do, and in a uh, it removes the scare out of deploying new versions to uh, to devices. To the folks that are kind of on the fence on hmm, this DevOps thing for devices, I don't know if it sounds complicated, sounds hard. And I don't know if I need this kind of a thing. I'm better off with just staying the way I am and deploy and not deploying software in this case. Are there any words of advice or anything that you would say to them? If you have a time machine to go back to you know pre two thousand, then then that's a good strategy. But I, I think it's a it would be a, just a tremendous missed opportunity to kind of not build on everything that's been built and 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 be more flexible in your software release cycle. As I said, there are more challenges with updating devices, but I think it's an inevitability that people are going to want to have things updated more. I mean, it's again, maybe I'm a bit too much of an engineer, but I've got this coffee mug now, which has software in it. And I periodically go, I wonder why they haven't updated the software, even though I, I don't really know what I'm looking for. It just seems as though it would be nice to have it updated. <laughs> That, that's interesting, isn't it? When, it has one well, function to keep the coffee at one temperature, but I still wanted to update the software. So yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? When when fridges first started having intelligence in them, we thought, oh, why? But then they become so much part of your life, and they fade into the background, as you say. Yeah, even my even at our old house, we had an induction range that had a nice little software interface, and you know you could kind of. It had some cool software functionality built into it. And, and even in the few years that we had, I uh, could think of 10 features that they could have rolled out, but I don't think they had a mechanism to update the software. And I'm sure that, you know, it's, it's one of those, I think it just delights end users when they get new features. It feels like you're getting a free lunch. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. So then, Andy, anything that I didn't touch upon that you'd like for me to ask about? No, just, you know, one reason to need more frequent updates is even from a security angle, there's a good chance that people, you know, the, the software gets attacked from practically every vector that, that anyone can dream of. So even just if you need to update your software to close a security loophole, that's reason enough to be agile in your, in your kind of software deployment kind of methodology. And, and especially as everything's networked, I think it's, it would be, it would be terrible to have a security breach, a known security breach out there, and not have a mechanism to be able to update the software. That, that, that to me would be taking a, an unfathomable level of risk, risk on if you kind of end up being the vector into someone's house or into uh, someone's whole life. So. 
I'll also say, Andy, that I'm an old robotics hand myself, having come out of uh, uh, being a computer science engineer and a, with a minor in robotics. And my first job was actually programming reticle handlers for wafer manufacturers. And uh, the amount of risk we took every time we sent out a new software package to these devices was tremendous. We're talking about being a micro na or a nanometer off would mean that your entire batch of mm -hmm. expensive wafers were all a waste. We just recently met with a company um, that there's two stages to building a car. There's sort of the painting and welding stage, which is done almost entirely by robots. And then there's the, the assembly, which is done almost entirely by humans. And just because it's a challenging, a more challenging task. And we met a company that's trying to change that and actually assemble the car with robots. Um, and they were just talking of, you know, when, you, when you're in, the, in Toyota's line, you cannot go down for even 10 minutes. And, and yet you, it's all done with machine learning and the software needs to be updated all the time without the robots even pausing. And so it's definitely a, a big change in the world. And that's an industry that's exceptionally risk averse in terms of adopting new technology. It's one of the world's biggest industries, but they change, even that is changing gradually to where you're kind of getting continuous deployment into these robots to kind of for the vision system. So it's like the robot goes to the optometrist like every second day now so to be able to see better what it's doing. I'm going to use that in my own vocabulary. The robot goes to the optometrist. Uh, that's cool. And uh, another tidbit that I picked up from your talk is also that um, you were talking about your treadmill having broken down. But think of mission-critical software, like things that are in clinical trials or things that are monitoring people's health, et cetera. Those things cannot afford to, it's not a mere inconvenience anymore. So mm -hmm. that's why the the power of being able to update software at will or as you see uh, fit is super important. And that also brings security mm -hmm. into the mix as well. Yeah, I, was, I have a friend who works at SpaceX and he was saying that when something goes wrong with one of the rockets, they can actually update the software fast enough to remediate that before it hits the earth, <laughs> which, was, uh, <laughs> which I thought was quite cool. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Great, Andy, this has been a fascinating talk. I've really enjoyed your insights into you. We talked about devices and how they've become uh, pervasive in our lives. We talked about adding artificial intelligence and machine learning and how we can make things so much more seamless and our lives better through that. We also talked about the importance of updating software and talked about how a DevOps kind of a mindset can really help make that less scary and make that more seamless for your customers for people who are de deploying devices out there. In closing, what would you say to our guests who've been listening, as well as uh, you know, any closing remarks that you have? Well, you know, I think I've been waiting for many, many years, probably, to see the sort of edge device revolution play out. And I, I think there were some false starts early on. And as I think about it, I think all the parts are finally in place. I think 5G is going to be a huge, a huge accelerant. I think the sort of the connectivity, the low power, the, you know, the much more powerful compute at the edge has, has really unlocked a whole ton of opportunities. And then mesh networking, I used to look at mesh networking 15 years ago, and it's never really come about. But I think as you're getting more and more network devices deployed, I think we even mesh networking is going to unlock a whole nother layer of functionality and kind of connectivity. 
And then I think when you combine that, the you know, when we talk about the intelligent connected world, I always think two of the key components of intelligence are hearing and, and vision. And I think as people are releasing more and more devices that kind of can see the world around them and, and understand it, and also have kind of a natural language interface through kind of, you know, 20 cent microphones built into the device, I think that's going to change just the user experience a lot. I think, I think devices like the Amazon Echo was sort of, the first incarnation of what you're going to see. I, I met a company once that's, you know, they said they would, they, the same way we license URLs and kind of register URLs and domain names, they, they were talking about, we're going to be registering trigger words. And I was amazed at how many people have already signed up for trigger words for everything to kind of say, I need to talk to my mirror, but I better address the mirror first. So it's going to be a different world when you're talking to everything around you. But I think there's a lot the software has finally got to the point where you can and i think a lot of it was driven by autonomous cars where you can finally start to look at the world and understand what's going on and i think that's that's just an earth-shattering change that the more you think about it, the more you realize what possibilities there are and and we're you know just in terms of scale we're i mean we're we love to invest in those kinds of sort of deep fundamental shifts in, tech, in the tech landscape and when we invest um, relatively early once a company's established early product market fit. So, you know, the typical revenue and we invest is around a million dollars or even less. So that's kind of the stage that we're looking for investments. Thank you, Andy. This has been a fascinating talk with our guest, Andy Vitas, who's at uh, Scale Venture Partners and also happens to be a board member of Esper.io. So in talking to Andy, I learned a lot about the technology, the very bleeding edge of where the in IoT as well as mesh networking and everywhere from rocket ships that can be rebooted and reconfigured while they're flying all the way to doorbells and warehouse robotics and everything there. I hope you got the same sense from me on the revolution is here and we're living part of it. To learn more about Scale Ventures, you should go to scalevp.com uh, or you can connect with Andy on uh, LinkedIn or follow him on Twitter at avidas. There's a device for that, is brought to you by Esper, the industry's first and leading DevOps platform for device fleets. If you're interested in learning more about how Esper can help you better manage your device fleet, reach out, go to esper.io or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at esperdev, at E-S-P-E-R-D-E-V. Thank you for listening. I'll see you on the next episode of There's a Device for That.